Hi, this is Cliff Grigo for the picture-poems.com website and the circle in the square. Thanks for tuning in. This is a, a little dialogue tape. I wanted to try something this morning a little bit different. It's about the middle of April, 2018, and I'm up at a fieldwork base camp, and it's I got a little bit of snow and the light's not very good, so... I'm seated comfortably in my uh, little tent, Bromi. And I happen to be working on an essay rather like the great uh, Gary Snyder (laughs) referred to uncollected poems left out in the rain. It's a little philosophical essay that I've published on the web, but not in any printed books or whatnot. So... I was picking it up again because the content, uh, the ideas, I think, uh, are good, but the form needs to be crafted and worked upon. So I was going over it, and I thought, hey, well, maybe I'll just put that into the dialogue circle by recording fragments of the text and then improvising Uh, commentary. Um, You'll easily be able to hear which is which, I think, because the one tends to be philosophically formal. And um, I think that's important sometimes, a tone of voice that is meant to be, how should I say, logical, consistent, uh, essential, brought down to some sort of uh, simplicity, but can also be difficult by nature of the assumptions that are being questioned. So we're not afraid of being difficult. Um, If it's necessary, much like uh, when we're out hiking or climbing, you come to a difficult pitch, well, it's just there. That's just the nature of the world. Well, what's being questioned, the title of the essay is The End no article, end of materialism, end of relativism. So I'm somewhat assertively um, questioning two of the most basic philosophies which underlie most Western art, science, and even to a certain extent organized uh, religion, although we're leaving that out. We're focusing mostly on art and science here. So uh, that's a big assertion, the end of materialism, the end of relativism. So in the spirit of the dialogue circle, well, what would dialogue be if we're not questioning assumptions? That's one of our main intentions. And especially... And this is where it becomes hard work. Uh, Questioning tacit or silent assumptions of which we're not aware. And of course, we need the help of others. You see my tacit assumptions much more clearly than I do myself. And just in the fact that I'm making this a contrapuntal um, dialogue tape, I become aware of things I was unaware of. Uh, simply by making it, uh, like the great Karl Popper used to say, objective, by uh, writing it down. And then, and especially in my own case, in any event, recording it. And then listening to it uh, over and over again, but not just over and over again, but listening to it in a natural setting. That means outside... That means uh, outside of uh, um, the culture, for example, hydrocarbon man, perhaps even in wilderness. And why do I say that? Because I think the potential for sensing the resonance of truth, the truth resonance of anything we're making or saying or playing, is greatly enhanced by doing it in that kind of natural setting. So let that sink in. 
We can always fight about what's good and beautiful. For example, we're going to be talking about sound and music, right? You have your idea of sound. I have my idea of sound. And relativism says uh, you can't really say which one is better. So we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. But it's a very uh, destructive philosophy. You see, if you were to do a whole book, which would be a great privilege, not an academic book, but one of utmost urgency, talking about the end of materialism, the end of relativism. Relativism is one of the key reasons, I'm saying it's a bankrupt philosophy, is one of the key reasons we do not have what I'm calling truth and function, that great self-correcting cycle which can reveal truth. And now we're just talking specifically in the arts. What is good sound? What is good music? What is good performance? Hmm? So uh, we're trying to get out of that prison of relativism. Okay, so let's listen to a metaphysical miniature that I just happened to tack on when making the webpage some five or six years ago for this little outline. It's just a sketch of a piece. I just wanted to get the ideas down. And again, I don't really consider myself a writer in the New York Times since. I'm more of a, a philosopher. And um, yeah, like you as well, I'm, I'm not academic uh, uh, a philosopher, but simply one who is questioning basic questions. And uh, well, I did uh, put an introductory miniature. It goes like this. And as a um, way of making it clear, I hope let me know if that helps. I'll put the composed text, the ones that are written out, either to the left or right if you're listening with headphones and in a different uh, quality of space just to make sure that they're clear. When music loses its relationship to dance, it loses its sustaining in nurturing resonance with the physical body, both of the individual performer and by implication that of the earth itself. When music loses its relationship to poetry, it loses its sustaining and nurturing resonance with the human voice. And by implication, the more subtle realms of meaning in things spiritual. Well, there you have it. That's a little uh, what I call miniature. Maybe I should comment on that as we're taking the time to go into these things. A miniature for me is not poetry. Um, and it's also, there are exceptions, it's also not aphorism. Um, the best uh, description as a genus, a genre, might be to translate uh, Goethe, Spruche and Prosa, that sayings in prose. I rather like that. Or from not the European tradition, from the Indian Vedic uh, tradition that I greatly admire, what they think of as sutras. They're, and then in my own way of thinking, a sutra is like an idea 
that has been brought down to some sort of essence. And there are usually many ways to say that one single idea. And over time, one works and works and works on it. That's a part of not just craft, but a kind of yoga-like practice. Uh, and eventually, if it's an important idea to you emotionally, uh, the right words will come out. And um, it has nothing to do with time. It also, if I might say, has nothing to do with writing things down. If they're important ideas, then they're meant to be learned um, uh, by heart. And why do I say this? Because once you learn them by heart, not memorize them, but make them a part of your whole being, then you carry them with you like your most prized possessions, like a pocket knife or like a watch or like a certain backpack you've been using in the wilderness for years. And there are things that are so important that you don't want to be without them. And as time goes on, as you walk the land, then when we know things like that deeply by heart, they become a part of our own being, then uh, we begin to see how they do or do not resonate with truth. Not with mere projected thought or mere projected reality, but with the ground of truth itself, which, is, of course, that's the whole point. Beyond anything we can think, say, or write about it. But we can resonate with it. And it can be demonstrated. So in this little miniature, which I've also lit fall by the wayside, and I'm trying to revive here in the dialogue circle, well, what is it about? Well, fragmentation of music and dance, fragmentation of poetry, in music. So we have two very deep fragmentations there. And deeper, they're probably both one and the same. That a breaking up of something that should be whole. Well, dance. That's a big one. And of course, it's meaningless in the popular uh, folk arts because it hasn't been broken about apart. Uh, but in the classical uh, arts, it certainly has. And in both directions, dancers by and large know very lit little about what really moves the best musicians. And the best musicians know very little, and I'm including myself, about uh, not in the best musicians, but just musicians, of uh, what mo moves and motivates dancers. Because very few of us are given an opportunity to really work in what I would call a dialogue circle, but then for the performing arts. It has to be, in my view, a dialogue circle and not just mere repetition of the past, even if it's Stravinsky. Um, we need something new, a different approach. And both of these things have deep implications for learning and education. So we have fragmented, uh, you can learn to be a pianist, a trumpet player, a violinist, and never once have danced in your life. <laughs> and you can spend an entire lifetime, heaven forbid, uh, in an orchestra, uh, playing your Mozart and Beethoven and Strauss, and never once get up and dance. Just in the same sense that you'll never once get up and improvise. So you'll never even leave this printed notational realm of the past, the very distant past, which might very well be totally irrelevant and outmoded. That's what we're saying. But it's worse than that because we've become so deeply conditioned we're not even aware of that. It just becomes a gig. And for good reason, people say, gee, why the hell should I go to that concert? Because it's... Uh, 
that's basically not just uh, meaningless, it's completely boring. So I'm questioning this division fragmentation from dance. There's a lot more that can be said about that, but just to get started. And I'm also questioning the music poetry thing. That fragmentation. And that deserves a whole book as well. But I think I'll just let that uh, resonate. That um, in the popular arts, again, there's no fragmentation between poetry and music in uh, Paul McCartney and Bob Dylan. But there certainly is in Elia Carter. There certainly is in all the other people writing music uh, these days. And even in the great Igor Stravinsky, there was that uh, division. The great Edgar Varez, Bela Bartok, the best of the best of the Western tradition. It's when those composers needed text, they very self-consciously looked for it. It wasn't an organic whole the way it is in uh, pop culture. It should be. It should be self-evident that it should be. So composers need to be intimate and be writing poetry uh, from the very beginning and the other way around as well. So really what that means, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> is that my sense of it, my proposal is that music and poetry are really one. And in a way, necessarily, they need each other. There are slight differences, and we'll go into that later. Um, not in this dialogue tape, but um, it's something to really think about in that sense of a sutra. Don't forget the sutras were like, are like polished diamonds. And then you do, and that's a very beautiful tradition where reawakening right here, then you do commentaries on the diamonds. Right, so you have the essence that was usually written by someone else, and then you pick that up as a pilgrim, and you explore its meaning step by step, very carefully. Perhaps you write an entire book on just one saying in prose, miniature or sutra. Think of that. Well, on with the text. End of materialism. End of relativism. A philosophical essay. Epigram. We don't hear music we hear our map of music. It has many distortions which lead us astray. New music begins in awareness of the map. Okay, to be fair, you can complain that we didn't get very far. So that was our title, End of Materialism, End of Relativism. You see that it's good to rehearse these titles. Um, materialism, if you want an example, I'm a lifelong reader and admirer of the great, uh, it's really a tradition, Scientific American. Um, but there are many problems philosophically uh, that are ongoing, that are never talked about. They're tacit. Well, maybe they are, but someplace I'm unaware of. Uh, because the science which is put forward there, is certainly the dominant science in Western culture, is based on a deep-seated materialism. In other words, that matter, the physical body, is all there is. So that's important to let that resonate. We're suggesting that that is far too limited. And it can also become a self-fulfilling 
assumption, hypothesis, if you believe that the physical body, just think about yourself, that means that you, <laughs> when you are no more, when your physical body uh, dies, that means there is the end of all existence. It's just nothing. Well, that could very well be the case. But we're questioning that assumption. And we're uh, questioning it with as much energy as possible because it very, very most likely, in my view, is distorting the actual truth. And don't forget the truth is something always beyond scientific description. But you can have a kind of science where you notice that, gee, a lot of the things that Western science is putting into the world are wrecking havoc with the natural environment. So that's enough reason to pause and step back and question the metaphysics of a great tradition like the Scientific American. Um, the end of relativism. And then we get this little uh, miniature that began life as uh, I'm laughing because my whole um, up here in the wilderness, I'm uh, at present, I have to be honest, filled with complete and utter disgust of what I call the social machine, especially Facebook, which I've totally deleted and tried to pick up every rat's crumb of personal data and destroy it. Uh, but also Twitter, which for obvious reasons is empowering the very most evil forces, perhaps in, in human history. Um, but uh, I didn't want to go into that, but it's certainly worth a dialogue tape and ongoing inquiry. But it began life as a 140-step uh, character tweet. And uh, it's meant to be rhetorical. Now, philosophically, that is a tradition that you say something in its most extreme form, and you do that not only for clarity, but to stop habitual assumptions dead in their tracks. That if you're seriously in dialogue, that means you're willing to listen to the other, to yourself, to the meaning, the consistency, the inconsistencies, contradictions and whatnot, and then really go into it, not just to slam the door, hey man, I'm just, <laughs> I'm out of here. I don't agree with you. I don't like you. I unlike or unfriend or whatever. But you said you're, you're on a journey together. So instantly there's a kind of seriousness which is almost in Western culture so dominated by distortions of high tech um, that we're no longer capable of serious attention about anything. So here we are. We don't hear music. You could say it like this, but that would have been too much for the tweet, you see. Does anybody listen to this? No. On Twitter, no. Twitter is a terrible place for dialogue. At least that's my own experience. Um, it's just that uh, so-called fire hose of data just overwhelms. Like this is a little crystal, this tweet. It's very carefully composed. And you would have to be in a state of profound quietness just to see why the hell is this guy talking about this stuff. There's no time for that. You go from one like to like to like to like that, and it's just, you know that there's an infinite stream that you'll never be able to keep up with. So you don't, we don't, myself included, it becomes a habit of not paying serious attention to anything. It gives tremendous energy to the fragmentation of the self-centered, petty me. And that's one thing for older people, but it's terribly destructive for young people who know now nothing else. They're growing up into that culture of the self-centered me that is measured simply by likes and the number of friends we have. It is a complete and utter disaster, but not this particular tweet. <laughs> um, we don't hear music 
So that's rhetorical. Obviously, we hear something. We don't hear music. Hmm? We hear our map of music. So what am I saying there? I'm saying we have a map, like I'm going up and I'm in the wilderness. Do I have maps? You better believe it. All kinds of different maps. The more, the better, because I want to understand things. And I know that they're always limited. If I have a map, for example, for altitude with contour lines, well, I use that intensively for climate crisis. And if I were doing a field note report and we were walking, looking at snowpack and all the other stuff that's going on, we would be very concerned about a certain difference in meters of 100 meters in, uh, in altitude. Uh, just in that little 100 meters, the temperature is going to be going up and down one degree Celsius. Well, that's something that we have to become aware of. So there are good maps and there are bad maps. And what I'm saying is not we don't hear music, we hear our map of music, which has many distortions which lead us astray. So in the spirit of dialogue, in the spirit of art and science and religion, in the spirit uh, of miniature sutra, a sutra, a miniature, is always a question. It's never a conclusion. And don't be cute and just say, well, Cliff, that's a conclusion. <laughs> that's so we're questioning the whole thing. And that is essentially the spirit of philosophy. That's why we say in the circle and the square and the picture dash poems dot com endeavor that we're all philosophers. Well, if you think about it, we are. It's just that some people give it more attention than others. And I'm asserting, proposing, throwing it into the dialogue circle that there's an urgency about it. Why? Say we're just composers or musicians, and say we're just composers and musicians, not doing popular music, but this thing that's on this god-awful periphery of Western culture called classical art music, good God, that has absolutely no energy, very few people doing it, but there is a set of extremely talented, um, especially the young musicians, um, uh, who are passionate about it. But it's within the context of the wide, wider culture, I would posit, utterly meaningless because it's not connected to anything. That means it has no natural resonance uh, with, for example, primary uh, problems like water, energy, climate crisis, pollution, violence, war. All of these things, are, you look the other way. Well, we're proposing that that is a tremendous mistake. So we're slowing the caravan down. And so this little tweet, this poor little tweet, we don't hear music directly. You see, I added that word. We, we don't hear music. We hear our map of music that has many distortions which lead us astray. So is that true? I'm asking a question. We're asking a question. So in a dialogue circle, the great privilege, we have the leisure to slow down and really look at it. We don't have a performance tonight or tomorrow. We don't have to finish that flute concerto next week. There are no exams next month. We simply are asking a very basic question. And it could change our whole course of being, life, way of performing. There has many distortions which lead us astray. I'm suggesting that we look at the distortions. And then it goes on that new music begins in awareness of the map. There's something, when we become aware of the map as it is actually there doing its map-making business, 
as we are when we're holding out here in the wilderness a map. We say, gee, this doesn't quite rhyme with what I'm seeing. Then something extraordinarily beautiful happens that we perception is purified. There's that truth in function again. So let's repeat that little aphorism. End of materialism. End of relativism. A philosophical essay. Epigram. We don't hear music. We hear our map of music. It has many distortions which lead us astray. New music begins in awareness of the map. And then it goes on with the main body of the essay. So we got our little sutra now. So where are we going now? Let's listen. We shape the world, and the world shapes us. Spiritual uplift. Have you ever noticed that when we hear music of the highest spiritual excellence, say, like the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, Igor Stravinsky, or Hildegard von Bingen, we, for some unknown, mysterious reason, without thinking and without force, and almost outside of time, align ourselves naturally to the vertical earth-heaven life axis of tall trees and high mountains. We are somehow lifted up into our full potential stature, as the Alexander Technique people like to say, suddenly realizing, as if awakening from a deep sleep, yes, this is who I really am. Okay, let's hit pause here. So there's a lot that we could go into, but uh, let me just comment on my... Um, we shape the world and the world shapes us. And the reason why that phrase, which is a really a call to awareness or attention of the significance of artifacts in the cultural world, that we shape the world. So we're actually putting things into the world. Let's stay with music. And that music comes around in a kind of mutual causation, as the Buddhists call it, to shape our thinking, which is going to shape our uh, creation again, what the artifacts that we put into the environment. So we shape the world, and the world shapes us. It's something to meditate upon in an ongoing way. The next uh, phrase, spiritual uplift, well, that, of course, depends on the culture, doesn't it? Like the present culture, um, j just by and large, uh, for example, we were talking about the social media. Well, do they encourage spiritual uplift? Well, I'm afraid not. Where would we go for spiritual uplift? That's a, it used to be universities. But um, universities, where are the ones which are, for example, doing pure science, pure mathematics, without regard to its uh, application in technology? We always think of the, uh, the great uh, center at uh, Princeton with a smiling Einstein and von Neumann and uh, many other, David Bohm was there, many other people um, enjoying that privilege of exploring things for exploring sake. Uh, 
Well, spiritual uplift and spiritual excellence. Well, we could do a little bit of editing for our writing now. We're using spiritual a little bit too much. And uh, that's only because of our theme to bring that around again. The end of materialism. Materialism has nothing to do with the spiritual realm, spiritual excellence, however we might define that. And relativism is even worse, that uh, there's nothing that we really do collectively. It's just, uh, who are you to say, get out of the way, basically. So the three composers, uh, Bach, von Bingen, Stravinsky, well, you could obviously pick many other if we're going to limit the discourse to music here. Um, from different period styles, uh, we could put, uh, uh, you could uh, say, well, why aren't we talking about jazz? Why aren't we talking about uh, other popular music than just Bob Dylan or Paul McCartney? Well, the actual content, as I've frequently said in the past, is, in my view, not that uh, uh, relevant. Obviously, it is, but only in a limited way. I'm much more concerned about the wider circle of the meaning of why we're doing what we're doing in the first place, the significance of, uh, for example, music or poetry as a whole. So not uh, about particular composers. That's all very much further downstream. But we are talking about spiritual uplift in an almost, quite remarkably, literal way. Now, from the materialistic point of view, that would be impossible to understand. Uh, if we step back from it, my own view, uh, to make it explicit, is that music is primarily movement, and a movement of meaning, a movement of energy. And by energy, I don't mean something metaphorical. I mean some sort of life energy. And obviously, something that's beyond the materialistic point of view um, of, say, uh, as we were saying, Scientific American. Now, why would I say that? Um, for me personally, it's because of direct experience. Not that that gives it any authority whatsoever, but it does uh, um, force me to question because I refuse to deny direct insight, perhaps, insight, simply because it's not on the map of the dominant culture. So that's something for young people, the revolutionary at heart, well, I guess young and old, to ponder. It's not resistance, which can generally be mostly mechanical, right? But you're standing your ground almost without resistance with the resonance of truth. They say, well, gee, this isn't right. We're missing something. So spiritual uplift. Well, it is this energy um, is a... I don't want to say anything about it in detail, but it begins with, is the physical body alive in some sort of spiritual sense? Is the earth as a whole alive in some sort of energetic sense? And my answer to both is yes. And uh, can that be demonstrated at present scientifically? Well, obviously not, and especially in a science which says it doesn't even exist. And there are reasons for that. Obviously, the most obvious one is that that subtle form of energy, uh, it would have been like talking about electricity 300 years ago, that you didn't have the instruments to demonstrate uh, your way of thinking or to put it in some sort of scientific uh, refutable form and all the rest of it. But in the spirit of dialogue, we step back from these assumptions and simply look at different points of view, new points of view, which might uh, uh, be revolutionary 
in both their content and how it changes in radical ways, in revolutionary ways, perception. So this uplift is quite remarkable, and for me it's very real. It's one of the main reasons why I stopped, to my great sorrow, um, professional conducting, is that I noticed that if it wasn't, weren't my own uh, pieces or other pieces I felt very, very, very closely to, like Edgar Varese or Igor Stravinsky, then um, the physical effects of doing, by and large, terrible music and I conducted a lot of it, almost exclusively, <laughs> really, in retrospect, terrible music. Um, and I'm talking about well-known people like Tsenakis and, and Elliot Carter and whatnot. But now I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't uh, involve with myself with that music at all. You can tell I'm stuttering, trying to find my words. This is not a confession. But uh, I experienced that in a very deep, physical way as the body rejecting these bad sounds. Well, it took years to understand that and to really see what was going on. And so I questioned the whole thing about uh, in classical uh, art music, performers are considered what I call now higher guns, You, especially in the orchestral things. You just play the music. <laughs> you go from one gig to the next and uh, I think that's wrong. It's much better to uh, focus on a music that you really believe in and stay with that. That's by and large what I did as a conductor, but still I had enough experience doing uh, this corrupted uh, music with very uh, questionable concepts of sound and performance, which at the same time was extremely difficult and demanding to play. I don't regret it at all, but what I do question is that it seems that we haven't learned a damn thing, <laughs> that these terrible musics, either maximalism or minimalism, they, uh, uh, they just go on. And now they're corrupting a whole new generation of very talented young uh, composers and uh, performers. And that's not only sad, it's tragic. So the dialogue circle is intended to stop that movement dead in its tracks. And of course, the only people who are going to stop are the people who are already uh, questioning. Hmm. That have somehow hit a dead end in what they're doing. And many times that uh, manifests first in the physical body, that your body rejects um, a certain aspect before uh, thought and thinking can catch up with that intuitive, more earthbound insight. Okay, so energy is real, life energy is real, call it what you will, and we're proposing that as a question. We're looking at it not as a conclusion. So we're open to refutations, different ways of looking, but it's exciting because it opens the world in a way that sound, living sound, and the movement of living sound are at the very center of our being, not on this garbage belt periphery where new music currently exists. Let that sink in. So let's go on with the text here. And have you ever noticed that the reverse is also true? The corrupt commercial music of systematic, intentional excesses of a thousand kinds enters and somehow distorts the physical, spiritual body. And with time, will cripple us as surely as contaminated food or contaminated water. The great danger here is that we easily, because of social pressures and norms, 
even in the classical arts, not tainted in principle by commerce, become tacitly addicted to the corrupted, the bad. Ooh, that one hurts, doesn't it? You see, that's the whole point of uh, relativism, the philosophy of who are you to say, who am I to say, who am I to say, who are you to say, what is good and bad, what is good and or corrupted, and what is beneficial and what is causing harm. Now, the image, no, start over. The example that I like to use with that is living, whole, flowing water. While out here doing field work, that is not just an idea. That is what I live for and by. To understand that, to give it a voice, and especially to protect it. And so what is the relationship between living water and living music or living, more generally, sound? Hmm? Now, even from the scientific American point of view, the materialist point of view, we have an idea about uh, good water. in the sense of absence uh, from pollution. But with sound, or take the visual realm, if you're privileged like I am to be up here in an entirely natural world, on the foot of a vast wilderness, one-sixth the size of Holland or Switzerland, which is entirely uh, devoid of roads and houses and huts and other infrastructure. There's no, um, there are very few artifacts of culture there. Well, if you are privileged to be up here doing whatever kind of work or activity for a time, say two, three, four weeks, and then you come back down into what I call the circle of culture in any form, a big city, a small city, a little town, but just to walk into a rural library, it can be horrifying. Right there next to the book checkout stand, yes, people still do read books in endangered species, but on the left-hand side, usually, will be a rack of, uh, what do you call them, uh, magazines. They're still there, people still read them. And they, in North America, over the past uh, 20, 30, 40 years, uh, they've become so glossy, so gaudy, so disharmonious. And I evidently, that's not just because of commercialization, but uh, the competition pressure shouting like uh, Facebook says, trying to get eyeball attention. And they are the very essence of, I don't want to use that word noise, let's stick with corruption. Anybody who looks at that kind of corruption will ultimately, this is the proposal, corrupt their thinking, thinking and seeing. Now, is that true? I'm asking it as a question. Well, it's a big question. You can't just reject it out of hand. That's not possible. This is serious stuff. You actually have to make that test of doing without you, yourself. And not just once, but repeatedly. Because otherwise, how will you ever know? Like the great F.M. Alexander repeatedly said, you can't do something you don't know if you keep on doing what you know. So we're asking, give up that magazine culture, that walking down Fifth Avenue or the city culture, where visual, what do you want to call it? Let's just call it corruption, both the good and the bad, 
is just shouting at you, trying to totally colonize your visual psyche. Well, uh, the long-term effect of that, I am suggesting in all seriousness, is identical with drinking corrupted, polluted, contaminated water. It's not going to kill you outright. But eventually, it's going to catch up with us, both individually and collectively, as a whole. And uh, I think that's already happened in terms of sound. But we're just not, again, we don't hear music, we hear our map of music. Well, I'm suggesting we stop and redraw that map. That sound is a very serious thing. It's perhaps the most serious thing. And that that physical vibration, the resonance, has a very deep connection with consciousness and energy in its very most mysterious, deepest sense. So it does make a difference what we listen to. It's not just a question of like and taste. It's much more profound than that. And in the past, perhaps, uh, in the West, we always think of Greek culture briefly for a few hundred years in Athens. That they did. There were cultures that gave much, much more attention to this than at present. In the relativism, note that it fits perfectly together with the spirit of colonization. Both, I'm not going to go into that now, organized religion that wants to come over and come in and take over the mind, the heart. By definition, they do that. So we want to be free of that, but also any kind of commercialization. Like you can ask yourself the question, can democracy survive just not social media, which is very much on everybody's mind these days, but could it, could have it, we're speaking in past tense, survive the commer commercialization of just television? Well, I would suggest no. You cannot possibly see 1.3 solid years of commercial television, one commercial after the other, which is deliberately trying to take over your critical thought. It's one of the most insidious developments that happen very gradually. But within a single lifetime, certainly in my own, I've watched the whole thing unfold, not consciously, and have been very much uh, corrupted by it. So how do you purify oneself, truth and function? Well, I don't think there's any other way, really. I'm just suggesting this out loud. Then that has become the, the new meaning of nature and wilderness as a place not of demonstrating athletic prowess and all that, but of purification. It's a place of pilgrimage, a place for uh, uh, meditation and purification, both alone and together. A place for dialogue, first and foremost with ourselves, but then perhaps together with other serious individuals and groups. But anyway, the end of relativism. So let's continue on with the text. The dead-end philosophies of materialism, that the physical body is all there is, in relativism, who am I to say, make it easy to shirk this essential responsibility in a world in which we are bombarded day and night by the bad and the ugly in every conceivable form and direction, from disingenuous corporate greenwashing 
to the government power elite propaganda to inherently biased commercial media of any kind to the lowest vulgar bottom line pop art on television. The only antidote strong enough to withstand the onslaught is, in my view, clarity, metaphysical clarity. By this I mean simply a kind of awareness as the corruption is actually taking place. A kind of meditation, a kind of watchfulness and neutrality of how these negative influences work upon oneself. We do this alone, and we do this together in dialogue. For these negative influences are actually a formative force. By this I mean a tacit movement of energy of which we are not aware deep in consciousness that actually is shaping, influencing, corrupting our thought and perception. This is, of course, one of the meanings of the phrase I like to repeat. We shape the world and the world shapes us. By this I mean the artifacts we create in the cultural world are of crucial importance because they come back to shape our thought and perception. And the great danger is, once there is corruption, that we will totally be unaware of this corruption. Once this happens, we can easily see that we're very deeply stuck and in trouble. This need to observe, to be watchful, also holds true for the good. But how are we to know, as a commentary, that's the argument of the relativist, that once you begin to say that this is good and that is bad, then the relativists uh, will demand some sort of proof or demonstration. And we're saying that's not only possible, but it's also a kind of necessity. Well, I would say that the good must be demonstrated. The old mountain farmer who can silently sit down and tap out rhythmically the nickeled blade of your scythe, and then work with it, with your own whetstone, to a sharpness that will last an entire day. That's how truth is demonstrated, both truth in content and truth in function. As a footnote here, this essential difference between content and function of truth. The one, if we stay with this example, which is only to me meaningful perhaps, because I've actually seen that happen on many occasions, the scythe, I mean. The truth and content is that the, the scythe is sharp, and that can obviously be demonstrated that you can actually shave with it or cut a meadow almost effortlessly uh, in the early morning hours working in the high country of the Alps. Whereas truth and function is more of a movement, not a thing, not a property, but a movement, and a very simple movement in a way because it's essentially a movement of self-correction. You can think of it as a wheel a cycle which is eternally turning, eliminating imbalances, contradictions, conflict, waste. Um, and in this example with the scythe, 
the fact that, uh, well, if you become habituated to a dull instrument, well, you begin to think it's sharp. sharp. That might sign, sound obvious, but in actual fact, that is what has happened in many realms, not just in the obvious case of dysfunctional political situations in the failure of democracy, but more especially in the arts. What would self-correction in the arts be like? At the very smallest circle, the very most intimate personal level, we all know that because we're correcting mistakes. That's truth and function. And essentially, um, when we're correcting mistakes, say, like playing too soon, we're not aware of it, but we have, as a subtle kind of tacit awareness, if we do come in, say, like in a string quartet too late or too soon, then instantly we'll notice that. That is truth and function. And you simply self-correct, find balance, realign yourself rhythmically, and then forget about it and move on. You have to forget about it and, and, and move on, like a bike that has to keep moving. Uh, otherwise, we fall apart, right? That is truth and function. Well, if we generalize that and put it out into the public arena, both in the traditional and also in the contemporary sense of social media, you can see that that truth and function, um, even in the most simple terms of feedback, that we actually know what is going on can, in the, and can respond to it, has uh, totally collapsed. This means that there's no control, that forces uh, which are essentially against freedom and against democracy and against peace are in wild runaway. And the whole world is watching this happen and at the same time in disbelief because we can't, that's our thought, uh, seem to do anything about it. To stop it. So to stop it would be a prime example. Just like the musician, it's not any different. It's just that the, the cycle is vastly larger, but not more complicated. We make it more complicated with money, corruption, and holding on to a legacy, the past, basically. If you're a performer, we never hold on to the past. That can happen if we're playing a kind of eye-dominant music and just reading uh, Mozart or Beethoven from the printed page in the string quartet. But the whole purpose of excellence in the performing arts is, I think, to transcend that. Well, that's enough commentary on what the text. Simply observe how music affects the body before you start thinking about it. Now think of that. There's a lot implied in that. You see that there is a kind of what David Bohm called proprioception, an awareness of thought and thinking and consciousness that is ever-present in a kind of uh, neutrality. There's no attempt to change anything. You're simply aware of what's going on. So we simply observe how music affects the body before you start thinking about it. Now, why is that thinking about it important? Because obviously that's where the past and habits, bad habits, uh, come in to corrupt what we're experiencing. Isn't that interesting? So some deeper truth, some deeper perception is manifesting and we frequently get in the way just by the habit of thought. It is worth noting here, perhaps, that the good and the bad are not contraries in the traditional sense. This is written more for philosophers, I suppose. Are not contraries in the traditional sense. Are not in any way related, like loud and soft, high and low, or fast and slow are related. 
Why? Because they do not share or emerge from a common source. Just like polluted water was at some point pure, so it is with music and sound. In my view, the how are we to know question can only be asked at the place, this is important, can only be asked at the place where culture meets wild nature. In other words, only by means of the simple test of what I think of as cultural fasting, of doing without a lot of the artifacts and assorted habits of an overly urbanized civilization. Yes, we can become and are too civilized in the way that Henry David Thoreau spoke of. Only by making this test of doing without and then coming back, returning to culture, do we begin to become aware of where we have gone astray. Okay, well, there you have it. That's the whole of the text as it now stands. You can tell it needs some serious rethinking, rewriting, recomposition. Uh, but where we have gone astray, perhaps we can pick that up next time in the next dialogue tape, the next dialogue circle. It's a lot to think about. Let me know what you think. Well, this is Cliff signing off for the picture-poems.com website and the circle in the square. Ciao for now.